I'm Brian Edwards Teekert. Climate change threatens our coastlines, our drinking water, our way of life. The world's governments aren't doing much about it, so it's pretty much up to us. That's the starting point for a discussion I'll be moderating Thursday, September 22nd in Mill Valley's Throckmorton Theater. We'll talk with the Marin Carbon Project's John Wick, who's researching ways to actually pull greenhouse gases out of the air. Also, Raven Gray, the co-founder of Transition U.S., who's going to talk about how to build resilient communities that can adapt to a changing world. We'll also be joined by Helga Helbert, host of An Organic Conversation. The event's called Under One Sky. The address is 142 Throckmorton in Mill Valley, and it's wheelchair accessible. The date is Thursday, September 22nd, beginning at 7 p.m., and the suggested donation is $15 at the door. Proceeds benefit Environmental Forum of Marin. There's more information at marinefm.org. And this is 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's a minute past 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover, open book. Hello, this is Nina Serrano for Open Book, cover to cover. My two guests today are G.D. Haynes, storyteller, and Al Young, poet laureate. We begin with Jeannie Haynes. Today's guest is Jeannie Haynes, a storyteller, performance artist, and wordsmith. And she's bringing us a really exciting piece that she has prepared. It's been a one-woman show called The Stove is White. And I've had the pleasure of seeing parts of this piece over the years as it's grown and developed and as she's added new layers. And I think some of the layers have been that her family life has expanded into other generations. And it's been a thrilling process to be a witness to it. So I'm so happy to be able to share it with you all today. Welcome, Jeannie Haynes. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. So, Jeannie, how did you start this process of preparing this one-woman narrative about your life as a mother, as a grandmother? Well, I wanted to do this piece, I think, for three reasons. The first is, you know, they say we write our stories so we can make sense of our lives. And then, because I wanted to record this particular piece of personal history for my biracial children, William and Alexandra, and my birth child, Kimberly, and my first children, my African-American stepchildren, six of them, and now, of course, the grandbabies. And then there's this third thing. It's about being an artist. There's this driving force that just won't let go until you create your art. Yes, being an artist, (laughs) that is the single thing about you, Jeannie, is watching you become such a finely tuned artist, to watch your artistry mature (laughs) through this process. As I recall, the very first program that we did on this theme was when you first had to meet, not had to, you went through a lot of trouble to arrange this, your birth daughter, who you had not seen since the moment of her birth and now you were going to meet her and I think she was even accompanied by a six-year-old grandchild at that point. So I think that 
story was so tremendous that we opened up the phone lines after the program, if you remember, to let listeners call. And we got overwhelmed with people who just opened up their hearts because they had had similar experiences, both as the child or as the parent. And it meant a lot to people. That's one of the things I treasure about your work. So... Mm. Without further ado, can you take us right into an excerpt from The Stove is White? Thank you. University of Florida, 1961. I earned my B.S. degree in journalism, but not my M.R.S. degree. Come graduation time, I'm moping around with the rest of my ringless sorority sisters. Well, if we're not going to get married, what are we going to do? And then Joanne, bless her, said, Let's go to New York City. New York. New York. Oh, yes, it's a wonderful town. And in two weeks, I land a job in the creative department of Columbia Records. Good morning, ma'am. I'm Jeannie Haynes, your new assistant they hired yesterday when you were out ill. I hope you're feeling better. I'm trying to make contact with this striking Negro woman intent on painting her long magenta fingernails. I'm pleased to meet you, ma'am. Don't ever call me ma'am. Phony kiss-up southern talk. The name is Gladys, Gladys Johnson, and you must be the college girl they hired out of all those applicants, including a very good friend of mine who knows the music business, and they give me some starry-eyed youngster, (laughs) like I have time to train you. You see this wall of cabinets? Inside, there's a frigging file for every frigging recording artist we've got, and they all need work. Well, move, college girl. Do I have to take you by the hand and show you how to file? You see that paperwork, those photos, and these darn news clippings all over my desk? (laughs) Supposedly you can write. Well, you've got your work cut out for you, honey. All the bios need updating. Very important. So, when an artist dies, we can give out their complete, correct story. Look at all these pink telephone slips on my desk. Everybody wants something from Gladys. Start with the Andy Williams bio. No, he didn't die, silly. Some gossip columnist is trying to make a bad boy out of him. (laughs) Oh, no. Get me a photo of the Duke. Right away, a great photo of the Duke. Ellington? Oh. And making his entrance is this tall, fashion plate of a man with bleach blonde hair draped over one eye, a silk scarf billowing behind him, and a gold cane. Gladys. Oh, honey, am I glad, glad, glad you're back. Breaking in the new girl, I see. Hi, doll. Start her right away on the Doris Day bar. We have to shave off a few years. <laughs> Again. And, honey, don't let anyone even near my office. I must concentrate on the contract for this hot new vocalist. But I keep telling her... Aretha, honey, you have to lose a little weight. Oh, this ghastly hangover. Ciao for now, Bella. Well, college girl, don't just stand there looking bedazzled at the Doris Day file. Oh, heaven forbid Deborah Ishland sees you slacking off like this. You met her, right? 
That skinny white girl <laughs> runs this department, stays in her office, lives in her office. And where's my Duke photo? You call this a great photo? This is a stock photo. And I told you to get these frigging news clippings off my desk and watch out for my water glass. And so it went with Gladys. Day after punishing day. I start one thing, she demands another. Right now, she'd say with these magenta-colored fingernails jabbing the air in front of me. And I don't like it. Well, nobody would. But there's something more to it. There's this thing gnawing inside of my belly. And then it moves up. <gasps> it has a voice. Just who does she think she is? A Negro talking to you like that? No. No, this isn't me. When I interviewed for the job, they were concerned about my southern accent because they said my boss would be a Negro and that she was pretty tough. But I said, oh, you don't know me. And I told them about my philosophy and my father and how I was raised in the North. But for the past eight years, more than a third of my life, I've lived in the South. And the only Negroes I saw, they were pushing brooms, cleaning the streets, taking away the garbage. There was no conversation between us. They knew their place. But Gladys... She was so different, bright and sassy and educated and certainly conversant. But a Negro just the same. No! no what is this thing that's this sense of... <laughs> superiority. Because I'm white? But that's preposterous. All prejudice is preposterous. My daddy taught me that. Oh, what to do, what to do. Well, for starters, I can be the best assistant that Gladys ever dreamed of happening. And, and I stayed late every night filing and writing and writing and filing. And pretty soon, you could see clean surfaces. <laughs> Gladys accepted my efforts with a sense of um, entitlement. I'd begun taking more and more work from her desk to mine, careful of the ever-present water glass, which one day I caught its whiff. Whoa. Vodka. Pure vodka. Well, of course. That's why her tongue is permanently green from all those chlorets you choose. Her lunch periods grew longer, and I got pretty good at covering for her. But then one day, that skinny white girl kept asking for and asking for, and then... Oh, no. Here she comes into our office. Where's Gladys? It's 3.30. Oh, Miss Ishland... She had to go uptown to meet with a new artist at the Apollo, and then another young artist came by. She called again just a while ago. I'm sure she'll be back any minute. Oh, thank goodness. Look, <laughs> there she is now. It was late when Gladys got back to our office. Everyone else had gone home. 
she looked at me with an expression that I had never seen before. Thanks for covering for me, <laughs> college girl. Listen, I'm taking you out tomorrow night. Now, here's what I want you to wear. Get one of those new mini dresses. Black. Black stockings, black heels, high as you can stand them. And, of course, we never go out without polishing our nails and wearing French perfume. That night, my roommates and I went on a shopping spree to Orbox, and I bought everything in black. I never took to the nail polish. But I loved my first bottle of French perfume. A precious eighth of an ounce of It was on my desk that morning. Oh, nothing. <laughs> Just something from one of my many, many connections. I like the dress. You look good in black. <laughs> and then she laughed that inimitable Gladys laugh. Oh, I wish I could do it justice. Especially that one. Because it was the first time that she had ever laughed with me. And that night... We're sitting in these fabulous seats for the opening of Duke Ellington's orchestra at Town Hall. Satin doll. Bum, bum, ba, ba, bum, 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 ba, ba, bum. And from the piano, he says, Ladies and gentlemen, from the audience, please welcome the original Satin Doll. And the spotlights beam on this gorgeous woman. She stands up. Miss Lena Horn. Her jewels are shimmering and her black eyes are flashing and she waves and we clap. Oh, Gladys, thank you so much for this wonderful evening. <laughs> well, honey, it's not over yet. At the end of the concert, we step outside to a summer's night rain. Oh, darling, just catch it if you can. Makes your skin feel so moist. Taxi! Village Vanguard, please! Inside, there's this wall of smoke and shouts from everywhere. Gladys! Hey, doll! Oh, sugar, you looking so fine. And then this honey-colored man stands up. Gladys, darling, oh, where you been? Bring that little white girl over here and sit down. And we're hustled in this half-circle booth, and everyone squeezes over to give us room. And as my eyes grow accustomed to the dark, I see I'm sitting next to John Hendricks, Lambert Hendricks and Ross. And he's scrawling notes on these little scraps of napkins. The words, baby, it's the words. you got to catch them when you can. Hush, John. Chico's coming. And then five men walk in with the flamboyant Chico Hamilton in the lead. His record, Blue Sands, just released by Columbia, is already climbing the charts. He sits down behind this magnificent set of drums, and he picks up these sticks with these little white pom-poms on the end of them. Pa-pa-pa-pa-pom. Pa-pa-pa-pa-pom. And then the bass man makes love to his instrument. Boom, pa-pa-pom, pa-pa-pom. The clarinet and the piano overlay their notes, and then the flute takes up the melody. Yes. New, new to my ears. 
and I just lean back and let this music seep into my bones and I feel the warmth of these bodies relaxed against mine. I take a long drag of my cigarette and watch my smoke curl and lose itself into this smoky scene. And I want a camera to be there. Not just the kind, you know, that goes click, 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 but a circling camera like in the movies. The kind that goes around and around and around to capture this scene, this fabulous scene. You just heard storyteller Jeannie Haynes performing an excerpt from her one-woman piece, The Stove is White. Jeannie, that was a magnificent performance. We thank you so much. What a piece of history you've written. (laughs) How did you. you get started on this? Well, I went to see David Ford, this masterful solo performer director at the marsh in san francisco and i worked with him 13 sessions on each of the four pieces this is one of the four pieces and i must say nina how lovely to be back with you you were my first storytelling director when i started at Stagebridge. it'll be 15 years in november and now well i've performed four other theater pieces I've written. I presented untold numbers of storytellings and storytelling workshops for seniors and healthcare. But mostly I teach storytelling. I've taught like 3,000 youngsters in 20 plus Bay Area schools, 200 senior adults in my ongoing classes at Stagebridge, where I am now, Friday mornings. Classes begin again there on September 18th. Do come. The first class is free, and the rest are really quite reasonable. And people can find out more about this at www.stagebridge.org. That's www.stagebridge.org to find out more about how you can learn to be a storyteller, and maybe you can learn how to be a storyteller from Jeannie Haynes. And Jeannie, do you remember that 15 years ago after you told your first story, I think it was at Lincoln School, and I accompanied you, maybe you had been in class maybe two weeks, and I threw you out there to the lions and sent you to the schools to tell the story, and afterwards we went to this little outdoor bagel shop and you said to me is there any possibility for a career in storytelling (laughs) and I said absolutely no way there is no way to earn a living at storytelling or create a career no way and here you are 15 years later a storytelling teacher a performance artist a storyteller in the schools a storyteller (laughs) at senior centers a storyteller everywhere including the radio so thank you so much thank you nina you were my start That was Jeannie Haynes, and to contact Stagebridge to enroll in their senior performing arts classes, go to www.stagebridge.org or dial 510-444-4821. Our next guest in my Poet to Poet series, our pre-recorded guest, is Poet Laureate of the State of California, Al Young. Dawn at Oakland Airport. Aggression keeps arriving, but almost never departs. As quiet as it's kept, greed bops along for the ride. 
Do you need James Brown hollering in your ear at 6 a.m.? When you've gotten all of two hours sleep, misread your itinerary, and coldly missed the flight? I can't stand it either, James. The godfather of soul and all the other godfathers share a mission this morning, and that's to put another hit on peace and quietude. You don't need no Johnny Cash, no saxophone quartet version of The Temptations, My Girl, no Goldfinger, no Ring of Fire, no Earth, Wind, and Fire doing Hearts of Fire. No jaunty disco deco from the decadent 70s. What you need is Z's and more Z's. Zambia, Zanzibar, Ziwatanejo, no, Canal Zone, Area 51, UFOs, out of here. Out of earshot, surely. And when two advancing armies in the war on silence conjoin, when the foreground music of Gate 10 crisses across Gate 8's background music, you know no zone can ever be demilitarized again. Green, brown, the hills that ring this East Bay underdog airport can't compete. And sky, oh, lazy, hazy sky of summer. What brings you here in April? The sky is battling, too. Give us Slim Harpo. The sky is crying. Look at the tears roll down the street. Give us liberty to choose your death. The breath you hold whispers the unspeakable. Can things actually get any worse? Yes, saith Phoenix. Yes, saith Las Vegas. Los Angeles saith yes. And Houston agrees. By the time you get to Newark... Maybe the Sopranos and all the electric pianos in the world will have gone on break. Gracias. A poem for listeners. It was Fran Leibowitz who told me that her writing students, she's um, an essayist and sometimes near-fiction writer. Creative nonfiction is what they call it. But she says that sometimes her students uh, have a hard time writing plausible dialogue. And she thinks it's because many people think that the opposite of talking is waiting. So this is a poem for listeners. <laughs> If uplifting those fanning ears, the elephant can hear ultra-high-frequency mating calls placed from miles beyond this deafening sky, then why can sultry laughter like yours, all piquancy and sass, take off? The rumble of it sometimes makes its way to parts of me I long to tour, but haven't. In shining ring within ring, the satellite brightness of your laughter... Lights heaven at hand, out circling itself like a rock dropped into a pond. If Ravi Shankar could hear the gouache, that's Nora Jones's father, by the way, <laughs> some of you may or may not know that. If Ravi Shankar could hear the gouache of anguish washing through St. Coltrane's cries, or if Ravel could hear the gypsy strains of Spain that ruffled his composure, a borderline away, or if bats 
can hear the sound of fruit flies walking. And if every city makes and leaves its own sound print, then tell me, with your next hard laugh, what animal ancestor of ours flowered in the sound of the note the chord never needs to round itself out, but takes in, thankful. Unpack, relax, and I'll tell you another one. One of the things that um, happens in poetry around the world is that it builds on everything that's come before. Poetry is much bigger than the kind of poetry we write right now. You know, I did this and I did that and I feel this and so forth. But it's no accident that all of the, the spiritual scriptures all over the world are written in poetry. Poetry records history. You memorize things through poems and rhymes. It's a vast area. In new countries like ours, which is still pretty new, in countries where a cultural tradition has been interrupted and something else superimposed over it, the emphasis is always on being original or new. But in traditional cultures, they build on what has happened before. I lived in Eastern Europe on a Fulbright in the mid-1980s, very specifically in um, Belgrade. And... I was forever at parties where poets would get up and recite 10,000 lines of a folk epic that everybody in that room knew except Al Young. And if the, if the poet tripped up, he or she was usually drunk at the time. Everybody in that room would make them go back and get it right. So that when you read those stories about Yevtushenko and Vazhnashinsky and these old Soviet poets being in Red Square and there'd be half a million people standing around uh, at the poetry reading that they were giving, uh, you knew that they were building their modern poetry on very ancient stuff, uh, folk traditions. The closest we have to that is perhaps popular music. And uh, this is a poem that's in that spirit. April in Paris after Yip Harburg and Vernon Duke, who were both Russian-Jewish immigrants. Russian-Jewish, Italian, uh, the eternal immigrant, uh, African-Americans, uh, Irish left us a, a vast body of song that uh, we still enjoy. It's become America's classical music, for better or worse. April in Paris after Yip Harburg and Vernon Duke. It was here in that one-time, one-stop, lighted blue of Paris at ease, close to the Cluny in splendid, straight-up noontime shadow that your slow and measuring eyes met more than their burning match. The smooth warmth of your whisper along my neck, the nappy back of it where you'd peel back its soft, excited collar to tell me everything you'd learned or discerned in a city where love and prices flirt. A product of standstill winters, sudden summers, sultry prejudice, and heartland steak and whiskey afternoons, you'd blown in from the States, an orphan of the arts. Mary Cassatt, Josephine Baker, Mary Lou Williams, Jean Seberg. What breathlessness overtakes me here, brushing and combing out memories of your touch in a season as uncertain as coastal fog moving inland from the loveless edges of that country we'd both fled? I shiver. 
Whom could we run to if not one another? Back home, we knew what it was like to be the other, displaced, despised, imprisonable. We watched and fought. The colors of loss deepened, yearning to break free, unconsciously American. We counted our chickens, certain that the ships we'd always banked on would sail in. In Paris, our adopted country of each other's arms, whose borders blurred all time, all common market sense, we saved the slow but steady squeeze of night, of time, the way it smothered darkness, the way it mothered light. The April of your frightened French was like that, too. You had no words for holiday tables, for chestnuts in bloom. Parisian light, like light at home, Detroit, Des Moines, lit up your waifish eyes. I said, think twice before you speak. Over here, you mostly knew the blues. Who rhymed with blue? There couldn't be too much light. Or too much touch. You've been listening to Poet Laureate of California, Al Young. This has been Nina Serrano for Open Book, cover to cover. Thanks to Veronica Fouchant for engineering. And thanks to all of you for listening. Have a very pleasant weekend. If you want somebody here on Twitwit Radio to insert your Twitwit into the conversation, tweet it now. And whenever you hear this sound, we're speaking your words. I see some Twitwit now. From Earth, it's Twitwit Radio.